0: Welcome, my buddy, to Crystal, Kyle, and friends. Uh, we have Adolf Reed on the show today. Adolf Reed, very prominent leftist.
1: Yes, I might say. Great thinker, one of uh, my favorites. Yeah.
0: So we're, you know, sort of. We've had uh, no big deal or anything, but we've had the legendary Noam Chomsky on and Cornell West, and now we have Adolf Reed, but whatever, doesn't even matter. I don't even know what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, he's working on uh, a new book that's about to come out called uh, The South Jim Crow and Its Afterlives. He's working on a podcast called Class Matters, has just been one of the most astute observers of politics, race, class, the left. Um, For really decades, he, in my view, is truly a national treasure and I'm excited to get to talk to him.
0: What's the thing he said about Obama that you sent me the other night?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know...
0: This was pre-Obama being Obama. Yeah, so this
1: was back in Chicago when Obama is just coming up. Uh, Adolph Reed pens his column for The Village Voice, in which he says, In Chicago, we've gotten a foretaste of the new breed of foundation-hatched black communitarian voices one of them, a smooth Harvard lawyer with impeccable do-good credentials and vacuous to repressive neoliberal politics, has won a state Senate seat on a base mainly in the liberal foundation and development worlds. His fundamentally bootstrap line was softened by a patina of the rhetoric of authentic community. Talk about meeting a kitchen, small-scale solutions to social problems, and the predictable elevation of process over program. The point where identity politics converges with old-fashioned middle-class reform in favor Form over substance, and he goes on to predict that he thinks this model will be the new one of for politics. So. Talk
0: about a prediction! Yeah, good googly moogly. That was right. crazy. He yeah. totally
1: nailed it, and and that's the way his observations are very, you know, tend to be very uh, prescient and on point.
0: So. Oh, that certainly is prescient and on point. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, so this is something. Chris Cuomo has probably the most unlikely defender you could ever imagine. <laughs> One Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Um, So why don't we go ahead and run that first video? But
2: Andrew Cuomo was Chris Cuomo's brother. And that's what you do with brothers, even the loathsome ones. You help them when they need it. Period. It's called loyalty. At CNN, as at the rest of the media, this is an alien concept. Is there a single person at CNN or any other left-wing network who would risk his job to help his own brother? No. Above all these people are careerists, ruthless careerists. They would betray anyone to get ahead. If Jeff Zucker told this guy to denounce his own wife on television, do you think he'd hesitate before doing it? Well, of course he wouldn't, not for a second. So when we tell you that the media are corrupt, we don't just mean they're corrupt politically. It is much deeper than that. They don't acknowledge the most important rules in life. Your first obligation is to your family. Your first obligation is not to the state, it's not to a political party, it's not to Jeff Zucker or some creepy billionaire at the Atlantic Magazine, it's not even to your own career. Your most basic obligation is to the people you are related to. When they need your help, no matter who they are, even if they're the governor of a state, even if they're horrible people, you help them anyway, because it's your family. Chris Cuomo may be an idiot, and he is, but he understands that. What a thing to be fired
0: for.
1: Wow, I did not see that one coming.
0: What a sanctimonious prick. So yeah. let me explain exactly why he's wrong here. Okay. He's not wrong about, oh, you help your family no matter what. I think like 98% of people would help their family no matter what.
1: There are some limits, but yes.
0: Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Somebody commits a quadruple murder and yeah. raped sure. a baby. Like, of course, there, right. there are limits. But generally speaking, yes, you help your family Believe no matter family w- what. What he's not telling you is there is a dichotomy here. You want to help your brother, fine. Resign from your shitty CNN show, period. Okay, your job is to be a journalist. Your job is to be a reporter. You have failed at that Time and time and time again, you had Andrew Cuomo on your show joking around about mom spaghetti and your Sunday dinners, holding large Q-tips for no apparent reason, <laughs> giving him fluff jobs on a regular basis, covering up his corruption. At the time he was on the show, there was already the story where Andrew Cuomo opened up this anti-corruption commission. And then as soon as that commission looked into him and his allies, he shut it down. Right. One of Andrew Cuomo's top allies is in prison because he was corrupt. There's a thousand scandals I could talk about involving Andrew Cuomo. The other one, the bridge in New York that's named after his father. They used the wrong supplies on the bridge, which made the bridge dangerous. Then he tried to cover it up. Right. The number of, of scandals around Andrew Cuomo are endless. I haven't even touched the COVID ones yet. Right. I mean, the fact that this guy Nursing home, covering nursing up
1: Nursing death, home, how many people
0: died bad. because Andrew Cuomo was like, nah, send the COVID positive Using people back in there. covered it up right his book. As he's covering up the deaths of these people in the nursing home, he's getting paid millions of dollars to write a book on how he defeated COVID. Are you fucking kidding me? Your job as a journalist was not to give your brother Nothing but endless praise on air. And then the second the shit hits the fan, he comes out there and what does he say? Oh, I can't talk about it because I have a professional responsibility to not cover it. So you could cover it when it was nothing but puppies and rainbows and singing kumbaya and holding hands. And now you can't cover it because it's negative stuff. Get out of here. Yeah. So you want to be loyal to your family? Fine. Leave your show. But what does Tucker Carlson do? He just does an unmitigated defense of him. There's no caveats. There's no hedges. There's no drop your show. And this, of all the times, Tucker would attack this guy no matter what. If fucking Chris Cuomo came out and said, the sky's blue, talking, be like, it's not, it's fuck. It's a, it's, it's turquoise. It's turquoise. <laughs> but now is when you defend him. What a hack. He's just looking for an angle to attack another CNN host because he's just as big of a hack as Chris Cuomo is.
1: Yes. He leaves something really important on it. He tries to set up this false dichotomy between the career and the family He leaves out of the equation the responsibility to the audience. That's right. The responsibility to, like, you know, portray the news and do your job as a journalist because people depend on that because that's an important function within society. That's left out entirely. And as you're pointing out, he leaves out like this was the only option is to help your brother and lie to the public. No, he could have said this is a time when my family needs me. My brother needs me. That's my top priority. And I'm either going to resign or I'm going to take a leave of absence. And I hope you'll understand that. There were other options on the table. And here's the other piece. is like, This dude lied about exactly how much he helped his brother. His He initially was like, oh, it's just a couple of phone calls. And then more kept coming out. And so he ha- kept having to cop to more and more. And I think even... He's friends close friends with Jeff Zucker. I think he even was lying to Zucker about just how intimately involved here he was. And when the shit really hit the fan was when it came out that he was using his professional network to try to dig up dirt on Doing the, like the women. Doing, like, oppo research on these women. On, right, on the women.
0: Fine, go do that, but don't be a fucking journalist. You're not a journalist. Right. This e- isn't that difficult.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, look, I don't think anyone would fault, even though Andrew Cuomo is disgusting, and, frankly, the sexual harassment, as disgusting as that was, is, like, the tip of the iceberg of all of the horrible things that he did and his abuse of power and whatever. But I don't think anyone would fault Chris Cuomo for helping his brother, what we fault you for is lying to the public and doing, being a failure as a journalist, which again is an important function. That's what we fault you for. So this is absurd that he picks this point. And it feels like, like you said, he just wants to take a shot at like another CNN anchor. And he also, because now other parts of the mainstream press Are on board with Cuomo getting fired? He can't possibly like be on board with
0: mindless contrarianism. Let me Mm -hmm. let me explain to you guys something about contrarianism. Can if you're a contrarian across the board, you're actually not a fucking contrarian. You're just as bandwagony as the people who are on the original bandwagon.
1: It's actually more embarrassing because you're basing all your positions on whatever they are. I'm, I'm the, opposite. the opposite. Oh, at you're least so fucking leading, intellectual. Wow. At least they're leading with the conventional wisdom. Right, like yeah. out their claims first. You're just acting in reaction
0: and he to thinks what everybody this, else is doing. And he thinks this shit is like brave. It's not brave. You're just an idiot. And one more point before we throw to the next video, which is actually somehow worse. Um, he talks about the media is corrupt. Yeah, Tucker, they are including Fox News. Are you kidding me? Fox News is the Republican Party propaganda network, and you know it. Trump was a fake populist, and then when Trump got through his biggest legislative accomplishment, a tax cut for the top 1%, where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%, Tucker and all of his allies on Fox News said, Dickie McGee's acts, as they posture like, I'm for the working man or whatever. Right. And then they pass this legislation, which is terrible for working people. He's got nothing to say about it. So yes, the media is corrupt. Fox News is the Republican Party propaganda network. Guess what? CNN is the Democratic Party propaganda network, as is MSNBC. That's the way it works. So, I, oh, I'm all for, let's talk about how the media is corrupt. Let's talk about that 24 seven. But from Tucker Carlson, it's the last person I need to hear from, because you need to look in the mirror if you want to talk about corruption.
1: Yeah, how about that? Um, here's a little piece of information about Tucker. Tucker Carlson, this is from Jacobin, slammed former President Obama in April 2017 for giving a $400,000 paid Wall Street speech, calling it, quote, indefensible. What could the former president possibly say, A, that we haven't heard, or B, that would be worth $400,000 for an hour, the Fox News host asked on his show. Five months later, Carlson and Obama both spoke at the same conference hosted by Wall Street giant oh. Carlisle Group, a private equity oh. Colossus.
0: Tell me more about corruption, prick. He bills
1: more than 70K per appearance, apparently. No word on exactly how much he made from the Carlisle group, but um, Such yeah. a
0: fraud, he's posturing, yeah. it's garbage. All right, let's throw the next video because this is crazy.
2: Jason Whitlock, I cannot believe opening this show with you, offering a kind of defense, maybe not of Chris Cuomo himself, who I do not like, but of his priorities. When you are called upon to help your brother, no matter what he's accused of, You help because he's your brother.
3: Am I missing something? Tucker, uh, you're not missing anything at all, but I've got a completely different take on this in terms of what the overall lesson here is uh, for both Cuomo brothers. They are the wrong complexion, and they're heterosexual for the time that they're living in, and they're finding out you can't be woke enough. And the Cuomo brothers have tried to play the woke game, but they're in the same crosshairs as every other heterosexual man in this country. And so given an opportunity to move on from Governor Cuomo and replace him with someone else, uh, the state of New York did that. Given an opportunity to replace Chris Cuomo now uh, under, you know, because he's defending his brother and he's somehow Uh, has run afoul of the Me Too movement, of feminists, and just the whole, in my view, the alphabet mafia, he he doesn't fit the right profile, and so they're gonna replace him with someone who does fit the profile. This whole diversity, inclusion, and equity, D-I-E, die. And what the people in the crosshairs are men, heterosexual men, white men are in the crosshairs, but all men. Black, white, whatever, are in the crosshairs.
0: This has absolutely, positively nothing to do with wokeness, nothing to do with cancel culture. Your job was to be a reporter and a journalist. You failed at that job, objectively. You didn't do it. You did the opposite of everything you were supposed to do, and you lied. So what are you talking about? wokeness this is literally the wet blanket that these idiots throw over everything because they have nothing else to talk about that's substantive it always goes back to wokeness college kid with pink hair hardy har har let's talk about this for another fucking 47 days straight how is this not stale to you people by now
1: i also just want to point out the absurdity of pretending like the cuomo brothers are persecuted these guys are they are italian Okay, let's fair be enough. fair. Fair enough.
0: My people are suffering. I'm sorry Thank for your oppression. Let my people go.
1: But let's be clear about why these guys are in these incredible positions of Fame and riches. Their fucking last name.
0: Because of Daddy. Yeah, yeah Daddy I mean, Mario Cuomo was a, a governor of well, New think York. Chris
1: Cuomo is going to become a primetime anchor out of merit? Like, no, he's there because it's of, like
0: Meghan McCain. He's male, Meghan McCain. That's what he is. Yeah,
1: he's there because of who Daddy was and who he had access to and had every advantage coming up. And yes, in part, that was because he was a white male born into a prominent, wealthy family that was well connected in New York, and so. The idea that you would paint the Cuomo brothers, who are the epitome of, of entitlement like, entitlement and nepotism, as somehow fucking
0: victims. Look at these victims over <laughs> as here. Somehow
1: persecuted victims, and also to that to that point as well. Like Andrew Cuomo, the media fucking loved this guy. Oh my god! The way that by he the was way, propped up, and they held on to that for so long after it was so clear that he was a bad actor, and
0: he wasn't fired. He was, quote, indefinitely suspended. They chose those words carefully because my guess is if they're going to bring back the guy who beat his meat on a Zoom call in front of all of CNN, they're going to bring back. Chris Cuomo eventually, okay? So it's it's, it's sort of misstated up front, and nobody even talks about the possibility that maybe this guy actually isn't gone for good. I think he's coming back. Uh,
1: I think he is coming back. I think that they'll probably wait for the fury to die down, and then when they feel like he's been chastened enough, they will bring him back. And I made that same
0: prediction on my show. I think he's going to be back eventually. I think so, too. But let me get to the... Ultimate irony and hypocrisy of what these idiots are babbling about here. They bring up He's the wrong complexion. He's you know, he's a heterosexual white male and They bemoan that others do identity politics as you're the ones who are doing identity politics right now You're doing the exact thing that you say you hate right now Nobody who is you know in favor of Chris Cuomo being let go is playing identity politics They're saying you're supposed to be a reporter and a journalist. You didn't do it. You failed at your job. Goodbye and these guys bring up identity politics, ironically, as they bemoan identity politics. Right. You are the ones playing the woke game. He brings up woke. like, this is what you're doing right now. The reason Chris Cuomo got let go is because he looked after his brother, and it's, it's his white skin, and it's his heterosexuality. Listen, I got white skin. I'm heterosexual. I'm not fucking oppressed. I'm just fine over here. And I guarantee you the overwhelming majority of people who fit those characteristics would say the same thing because most people— don't play identity politics. Most people just feel like a normal person.
1: Yes, and you know, I mean, we could play this game all day long. Mark Lamont Hill was fired
0: for for comments critical of Israel and pro-Palestine, and exactly. he was let
1: go like that when you know he he wasn't given the chance. Like Rick Santorum was ultimately let go, but he was given the chance to sort of like apologize and whatever. So, if you wanted to play that game, you could. But the bottom line here is that. Chris Cuomo failed at his job. It became manifestly obvious. It had already been manifestly obvious, but they managed to resist the pressure for a little while. It just became too blatant. He lied to them. He lied to his audience. He was unable to cover the stories that were really important in an objective way. Covering up for his brother and using his professional network to do so, it was inexcusable, and ultimately even CNN felt too ashamed to continue.
0: If they didn't fire him after these new revelations, Tucker would have covered the new revelations and insisted, how the hell does this guy still have a job? Because his whole thing is just like, CNN bad. I get it. I talk about it all the time. Virtually every segment I do on CNN, I say CNN bad. Okay? Okay. But you can't just be a contrarian and work backwards from your conclusion all the time because that's intellectually dishonest, which is exactly what Tucker Carlson is. Yes,
1: and also, you know, they, there's also this instinct now to wave your hand at any sort of sexual abuse or sexual harassment allegations. The like details of the all... Cuomo
0: one are like, look, I'm, I am I'm, agree that you have to evaluate everything on a case-by-case 100%. basis and be objective. It's not, I, I never, you know, signed, uh, signed on to the whole, like, believe all women. Believe, what does that even mean, believe all women? You have to, evidence matters, like facts matter about the situation. But when you look at all of the claims and you go through them with a fine-tooth comb, are there maybe two or three of them that are not fair? Sure. But are plenty of them super questionable and super fair? Yes.
1: Yes, indeed. And you even have records of, you know, a state trooper who was moved up to be in proximity to him. You have all of the supporting evidence and woman after woman after woman who made claims. So there's no doubt that there was plenty of wrongdoing going on there. So- Listen, family loyalty is fine. He could have resigned his job. He could have taken a leave of absence. He could have been upfront with his audience, upfront with the network. He didn't do any of that. And belatedly, much belatedly, he's paying some kind of a price. Although, like yeah. you, I think he will be back.
0: And Tucker Carlson, go hang out with Chris Cuomo at your yacht club where I'm sure you're both members.
1: Yes, indeed. All right want to get to our guest, who I'm really excited to talk to, Professor Adolph Reed Jr. He's a professor emeritus at UPenn. He's an author. He's an organizer. He's a scholar. As I mentioned before, he's got a podcast he's starting called Class Matters, which I'm super excited about. He also has a book that is set to come out called The South, Jim Crow and its Afterlives. I've started to read it. It is phenomenal. Look at his childhood and how Jim Crow shaped the South and everyday life. Um, let's get right to it. Joining us now, we have Professor Adolf Reed, Jr. Great to see you, sir.
4: Well, it's great to see you, too. It's good to be back. It's been a while.
1: Yeah, it's been way too long, actually. Uh, time has just sort of moved in weird ways <laughs> these past oh. few years.
4: Oh, it was want- pandemic time.
1: Yeah, exactly. I actually wanted to start with, you were telling me what your background is there behind you. Just tell tell the oh, audience what that is yeah. and what the significance is.
4: Yeah, it, uh, this is what's called... Uh, I'll kind of duck out of the way if I can. Uh, but I mean, this is what's called the drawback, right? Which is the sort of unnaturally uh, or rather when the uh, um, tide line uh, on, on the shoreline is unnaturally pulled away from the shore uh, as, uh, as um, a preliminary to uh, the crashing of a tsunami wave, right? Um, and i uh, and I mentioned, like, I've been for a couple of months now, just kind of haunted almost daily by the image of of you standing on the shore, watching the tide drawn unnaturally far out to sea, and sensing like a mounting um, wave like on the horizon, right, uh, as a you know, with a sense of foreboding, and that is just what strikes me as being a uh, um, a metaphor for what the current political situation is like in the mm-hmm. U.S.
1: And do you mean that in terms of the economic situation, the political situation, the pandemic situation? Draw the uh, analogy a little it, bit more.
4: Frankly, more of uh, the political situation than anything else, right? Uh, because that's where I think the greatest danger is. I think we're like, what I've sometimes said, we're like uh, of a cold cup of coffee in the morning away from a, a right-wing coup. So...
0: Yeah, I think um, I've said this before, as far as I know, I'm one of few people crystals, uh, you know, alluded to this as well. But I think Trump's the favorite for 2024 right now.
4: Well, you know what? I don't know. See, I think uh, it could be or 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 Trumpism. Right. Which I think is the really important thing. I mean, you know, Trump, I sometimes think is like, I don't know, like a cross between um, you know, the Lonesome Rhodes character from the 1950s film, A Facing the Crowd, kind of like a patsy for a uh, you know, right-wing interest who gets too big for his britches, uh, and like a, you know, Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin caricature of a dictator, uh, Trump isn't so much the problem t- for me as the forces that have condensed um, around Trump's image, right? And that the very, um, you know, deep and dark and dangerous and well-funded right-wing have uh, helped to condense around Trump's image. I mean, for instance, just to take the, um, the vaccination stuff, uh, you know, after the fact, it looks like a natural that, uh, you know, the sort of superannuated um, hippies from, uh, you know, from elite colleges who are, who you know, don't want to get their precious kids vaccinated would um align with, uh, you know, with, with the anti-vax sentiment coming from the, that's being stoked from the Trumpist right. But it happened and it happened you know, sort of fluidly and naturally and kind of the same ways that some of those hippies had been aligning with survivalists along the road anyway. But like this is the kind of thing that the right has been much better at doing than what occupies the cultural space that we would call a left uh, you know, in the U.S., has been good at doing right. They're better at sort of mobilizing um, alliances, you know, even if they're targeting them through scapegoating and and and, uh, um, and a resentment. But they've been much better about sort of. Um, Trying to put together um, alliances that can prevail over what, well, you know, what the Maoists used to call the objective of politics, which is to unite the many to defeat the few, and they seem much more um, um, adept at doing that than the nominal left seems to be. Where the left at this, or what gets called the left in the U.S. at this point, uh, is seems that, you know, much more about, you know performative politics and showing uh, moral rectitude or whatever.
1: Yeah, which is the actually the opposite of coalition building. Right. Why do you think, is that a new phenomenon, first of all, and where do you think it comes from?
4: Ah, well, that's, well yeah, those are two good questions. Um, it's a tendency that's been there for a while. I might even say it's a tendency that's been there for a long time. I mean, if you go back to anti-slavery politics in, in antebellum era, you've got like You know, two distinct tendencies. One is, uh, you know, what Eric Foner and others have called political anti-slavery is people who were opposed to slavery for all kinds of reasons, but were focused on the uh, concrete objective of getting rid of slavery. And and there are people who were opposed to slavery for moral reasons and on moral grounds, and were uh, to some extent more concerned with making the moral statement than... Than they were with uh, with being politically affected. Now that can be an exaggeration too, because obviously you know it it did take two to tango in in the event. And guess what? There's no more slavery, at least not of that sort. Um, so that tension is always there. I, I, I mean, I've sometimes uh, sort of you know referred to it dismissively as a Protestant tendency in politics, but I have some friends who who have insisted to me that I should stop stop saying that. But but. <laughs> but but, but a about a tendency to reduce um, politics to um, bearing witness in public about one's own righteousness and one's stance. Uh, I think it's gotten more um, that 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 approach to politics has become more prominent I think over the last thirty years it's part of as part of uh, a response to um to an ongoing condition of defeat right I mean left forces have been in retreat in the US since you know either the Reagan era or Carter depending on how you want to count it or even earlier in some um, way well I mean some ways of reckoning um, but especially in the last decade or so I think um, one thing that's happened is that one expression of the victory of, of you know neoliberalism, Uh, By which I mean, I'll just say this for the record, uh, like people, I mean, there's obviously a cottage industry of academics and others trying to define what counts as neoliberalism and what doesn't. And to me, the simplest way to think about it is that uh, it's capitalism that's um, effectively um, eliminated working class opposition. Uh, And uh, as David Harvey put it once, it's like, as the program is two things. it's uh, on the one side, it's a free market utopian ideology on the other side. it's a very pragmatic um, stratagem for um, um for effecting uh, um a regressive economic transfer uh, and it's, and it's both those things together. Uh, but anyway, like um, the the effects of the last forty years have been, you know, um when you know with respect to uh, economic inequality uh in in uh, particular uh, you know we've been losing ground steadily yeah uh, and, and 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 what happens is that um you know to maintain a sense of being or of wholeness or whatever uh on the left um public expression of the rectitude of one's politics becomes increasingly important in relation to the objective of trying to put together alliances that can actually prevail uh, to win stuff. And then the stakes of you know, winning get defined downward. I mean, I remember 30 years ago, probably uh, Paul, Paul Wellstone, who was a friend of mine from college until he died, uh, you know, saying to me once, I said, look, you know, we've fallen into a position now where the right proposes something really, really terrible. And then our side responds with something that's slightly less terrible and a slightly less terrible thing wins. And then we have um, a celebration to toast the victory that we've won, that when all said and done really just made things worse than they had been um, you know, a little bit before uh, anyway. So, so, so I think that this is partly expression of a culture of defeat but i think there's something else going on which is a little more insidious and that is you know that there's a kind of political economy of uh you know progressive activism i guess you can call it that's that's pretty much in, in embedded like into neoliberal do-good um what uh, uh, or or into an economy of, of you know neoliberal do-gooderness you know too so um so it's possible to have careers um, in which you you never really confront um, the um, the essential contradictions that reproduce inequality. So, for instance, I'll just say what I'll say this in passing because I've I've been talking too much anyway. But I'll shut up after this um, comparison. For instance, yeah, I was listening in the car car radio a couple of weeks ago uh, to somebody who made a reference to people who are on unhoused right and it reminded me that the way that we we're supposed to talk about homelessness and i never liked you know trying to reify this population as the homeless anyway because it's the same thing uh but that is sort of treat um treat um, a condition of you know, unjust uh, you know, denial of access to the basic um the resources that that I'd argue everyone needs uh, you know to be a fully participating member in the society as though it's part of their like ethnic groupness or essence, right? Mm.
0: Yeah, an individual moral failing too as well.
3: Right. Yeah. Oh,
4: right, exactly. Yeah. So so like then you get into the secondary debate over whether um, you know they're in this condition because of something that's wrong with them, or if they're in this condition because of something that's wrong with the social order. Uh, but you never really get, you know, talk about the fundamental problem, which is that, well, homeless people are homeless or on 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 whichever makes you feel less um, offensive because they don't have any place to live. And they don't have any place to live because of the way that capitalist housing markets operate without restraint by uh, government and public oversight. And, and that just never comes up. So, I mean, that's. Yeah. It's kind of where we are as a left at this point. And not to mention stuff like, you know, the so-called uh, right. Every problem of apparent racial inequality seems to lead to uh, the need to um, address the so-called um, uh, racial wealth gap, for instance, which is another version of the same kind of thing.
0: So um, the core of the problem, let's talk a little bit about the core of the problem, because as you were talking, this sort of occurred to me that in my uh, reading of the situation, and you tell me whether or not you agree, it all looks like it stems from the fact that our our system is so deeply corrupt that um, all these pathologies pop up on the left as a result of that. So sort of like you were alluding to while talking about neoliberalism, if uh, military industrial complex money, uh, dirty energy money, big pharma <clears throat> money— if it has totally bought and owned the Republican party and it has bought and owned 85% of the democratic party, then since we feel so ineffectual in addressing any of the core issues, then we pivot to stupid conversations about Mr. Potato head and, and whether or not to use the term Latinx. is that a fair summation?
4: Uh, Yeah. Except for one, one place I differ with you. uh, And it's, From one perspective, a big one. From one perspective, it's a tiny one. From my perspective, it's a tiny one. Yeah, I don't see the problem as corruption, right? Um, um, I see the problem as capitalism, right? It's capitalism doing what capitalism does, right? So it's not corrupt. It's like the system performing the way the system is supposed to perform, right? It's a
1: feature, not a bug, is what you're saying. Well, I guess.
0: Very much. My my only rebuttal to that would be. you know the the Scandinavian countries are a social democracies so they definitely have an element of capitalism in them they're just right. it's it's a hybrid mix with socialism and it creates right. less inequality and less destruction and i don't see the same level of pathologies coming out of the international left or the left there as i do here
4: well maybe not in the Scandinavian countries i don't know but i mean this is kind of the way that it's been here right um so I, I mean, look, like so. Was, was, this is the thing. I'm, uh, Yeah, the reason I don't like corruption as a frame of reference, and you know, I know my good friend Ralph 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 Nader uh, it, you know, has a view that I think is closer to yours than 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 mine on this question, and, and and it really is maybe just an academic question. I don't know, but um, but the corruption frame seems to me to lead just as easily toward a kind of throw the rascals out politics that can give us you know the second version of Tom Watson as it can give us the first version of Tom Tom Watson right I mean um, or can give us Trump for instance right Trump, Trump Trump rose on a wave of 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 an inchoate, um or, or not very well articulated um um sense that that our politics is is corrupt right mm-hmm. but but corruptness doesn't really give us much of a diagnosis well it says, i think it's all oh, sorry mm-hmm.
0: no i'm sorry go ahead i don't want to cut you off
4: oh well it's dialogue so i mean you know, oh, okay
0: uh, um I was gonna say, if if it's not a th- to me, it's not a throw the rascals out problem. It's a throw the private financing of elections money out problem. I butchered that, but I think everybody gets the point. Um, yeah. Because if you have a clean election system, um, this is what I wrote my thesis on when I was studying political science. If you have um, yeah. a clean election system where it's all publicly financed, what happens is you, they're no longer representing. Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Pfizer, whoever, then you actually have a debate about ideological differences and ideas. And when you look at the polling data, it shows that Bernie Sanders' agenda, issue for issue, whether it's minimum wage, unions, healthcare, Mm. you name it, um, people support it. So uh, maybe it's naive of me to think that if you get the money out, that would lead to deep systemic change. But that's certainly my diagnosis of the problem. Not to say that you're incorrect in saying that capitalism is the problem as well. I guess I'm just saying perhaps the bar is maybe slightly lower than many would perceive it
4: well yeah and i take that point uh and and, i mean that's the and i've had this discussion about um um about campaign finance reform for a long time too um and i'd say this like yeah if if we could get the money out then that would be a big start but it's also kind of like well if queen elizabeth had you know a Y chromosome she'd have been king elizabeth right i mean because How do you get the money out? And the way that we have to get the money out at this point is to depend on those who benefit from the current system to vote to change the system. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, the argument is and this is not I mean, this makes more of your case than it makes my case. But the argument is since the Supreme Court in a number of decisions, they've effectively decided that spending private money on the election system equals free speech. So since that's the case, you would need a constitutional amendment which goes through the states, which you need, I think, three-fourths of the states or something like that in order to do it, which is a very high bar. It seems nearly impossible to me. So again, more making your point than making my point. The only thing I could come up with that's sort of a workaround around that would be this notion of a national direct ballot initiative where every time Americans go and vote for president, you also get to vote on like the top five political issues of the day, let's say. So if people were voting directly on whether or not to, minim- to raise the minimum wage, I think they would because you know Trump won Florida in 2020, but 60% right. of the voters also said, let's raise the minimum wage. But again, that's also like a workaround. And to your point, you need the people in the system to vote for that sort of reform, which sort of seems like mission impossible, doesn't it?
4: Well, it feels like it. I mean, I would say this, I mean, so yeah, so the problem is that um, that campaign finance reform or you know getting like big big money out of politics is an issue that it's really difficult to mobilize a popular mass around because it's one that gets pretty quickly technicistic, right? Right, and yeah. Like, and like off into the weeds. So it's really something that, you know, people like us, and I'm one of them too, who like write theses in political science can get really worked up about, right? I mean, this is like, I've, I mean, like a number of what the young, uh, uh, and the young people associated with Jacobin, uh, I mean, tend in this direction too. And it's a kind of, you know, like we, we can work it out basically, right? People like us with the, you know, skill sets we operate with and the kind of stuff that we've done, done for a living. Kind of feast on this sort of problem right but it's but to but to build a really broad popular broad and deep popular movement like you need to have issues that connect more cleanly and directly with how people understand what uh, you know the troubles and, and and the opportunities and aspirations yeah that 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 define their own lives right and to that extent I think We need to have the election reform stuff, but I think the way for us to get to it is the other way around, right? Is by getting to it through trying to mobilize, you know, the class-based or around the working-class-based agenda that speaks to people's needs directly.
3: And Uh, and oh, by the
4: way, like along the way, right? Then um, election reform, uh, you know, starts to make a lot more sense to people as a way of. Both winning and 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 holding on to what they've been able to win,
1: what do you think are the biggest barriers to mobilizing around that obvious issue set? Um, right. bread and butter issues that connect to people and their lives and how their you know workplaces and their families. What are the major barriers on the left to being able to organize that class-based coalition because this has crashed crashed into the rocks, not just now in history but throughout history?
4: Yeah, well, that's another great, great, great question. I mean, in um, honor of my good friend Jane McAlevey, I would argue that the number one barrier at this point is that people think that we can mobilize instead of organize around it, right? And and by that, I mean, the difference is um, in her great book, No Shortcuts, Jane uh, you know, makes an important distinction between mobilizing, which is basically um, you know, getting the constituency that you already have to do stuff, mm. right? And organizing, which is talking to people who don't already agree with you to try to broaden the base of constituency. And I would argue that what the left, such as it is in the U.S., has done consistently over the last 35 years is try to mobilize, but haven't put very much into organizing. And this, in a way, kind of speaks back to the moralizing problem, too, uh, because you got to be able to talk to people that don't already agree with you, right? And about you know stuff that you don't already agree about. So, like, I'll give you an illustration. Like in 2019, I, I was on a labor tour for the Sanders campaign in South Carolina, and we and we did a thing at a steelworkers' local in Georgetown, South Carolina. If anybody knows it, it's on the coast, a little bit south of uh of uh, near Myrtle Beach. Uh, and there were a couple guys, a couple of white rank and filers there, what guys who were like, one's about 40, one's an older guy. The older guy was just, he said he grew up on a farm and, and I believe him. And he was like straight out of an animal farm in the sense that he literally said nothing except bring the manufacturing jobs back, get the illegal immigrants out, right? Just over and over and over. Um, And but the other guy is about 40, maybe. And he says, look, like, I like a lot of what I see in the Sanders economic program. Um, uh, But the thing I the thing I don't understand is how the Democrats keep letting themselves get bogged down in what he called these moral issues. So we went around a little bit about what that meant. And of course, it meant, you know, standard stuff, um, reproductive freedom, uh, you know, same sex marriage and stuff. So at first I tried, uh, well, you know, pluralist, right? Um, I mean, live and let live line, which wasn't going very far. Um, And then um, I eventually said, well, look, so um, here's a way to think about it, right? Um, You know, what's more important to you, right? Like, is it more important to you that no woman is ever able to have an abortion than that you have a decent and secure job with with a good pension and, and, uh, access to, ha- I mean, good quality health care guaranteed, or that, you know, no two people of the same sex can ever marry, or that you, you know, I don't know, have, have, have affordable housing or whatever. And, and I'm not stupid and don't think you guys and the audience are stupid. So I'm not going to make any claim about a light bulb going off, but it did slow him in his tracks just enough. To make me think that, well, well, I as some you know jerkoff who came out of nowhere wouldn't convince him, but maybe if there was somebody in his network, right, in his union local, in his neighborhood, in, in his softball league or whatever, you know, at his church, who had who, you know, worked with him, right, or discussed with him, right, over time, uh, you know, you, you know that way of thinking about politics, it could have some some effect, right. Um, and, but one of the problems, and I'll, you know, shout this from the rafters wherever I am <clears throat> is, uh, and I mean, Crystal, you may remember this, I don't know, because uh, I may have said it on your show, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, I mean, before, but, um, you know, going back to the 2000 presidential election, like my line on what happened was to quote, Um, a song by an R&B singer named Ann Peebles, the title and the chorus of which were, I didn't take your man, you gave him to me. And and the point of that was that, you know, Bush didn't steal the election so much as Gore gave it to him, right? Mm -hmm. Because if Gore had carried his home state, he would have been President Gore, right? Uh, And that's what's happened since then, right? I mean, in the 2004 um, right election, my son, who was uh, I guess just an assistant professor then, was what i said to me. Well, look, it's like this: either um, you know, Kerry talks about NAFTA, or Bush is going to talk about gay marriage in places like Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, right? So, so my point is here that the Democrats have been telling working people since Clinton uh, or since the DLC was founded in in the Democratic Leadership Council in 1985, that you can't expect anything, like you shouldn't expect anything. We'll take care of you later. we got to take care of Wall Street first. I mean, don't worry, we'll come back for you. And they never got back. And then you look on the debate stage in 2020 and see every Democrat up there, except for about, you know, three days a week of Elizabeth Warren for the first half of the campaign, (laughs) um, was... Had had nothing that they stood for at, except to tell Bernie Sanders no, right? Mm-hmm. To tell Sanders and Sanders' and supporters that it's irresponsible for working people to want anything out of politics. Yeah. Right. So, what do you think is going to happen?
1: Right. I mean, President Obama, who you very presciently called from the very beginning in a famous <laughs> column at the time, um, but he gave a speech when he was campaigning for the uh, New Jersey governor. Saying mm-hmm. effectively, like, look, you guys let me down in 2010. People were disappointed, and you didn't show up for me. And oh, yeah. of course, we're not gonna. I'm obviously I'm paraphrasing, but of course, we're right. not gonna be able to get everything done. But still, right. you got to get enthusiastic and come out and vote for this governor, who very narrowly won reelection in New Jersey, a very blue inspiring,
0: state. very inspiring. Yeah, really message. In- inspiring <laughs> message there. Right.
1: Yeah, but you totally. know, th- but obviously, the pushback to that, which I want to offer, is. In that exchange with the, the gentleman who I, I think you described as like a farmer or something like that, who had some right. more conservative uh, mm-hmm. views on cultural issues, but could be won over on economic issues. Well, why do we want to coddle racist, sexist homophobes and bring them into the coalition? And aren't you by doing that just throwing women and people of color um, and the LGBTQ community under the bus?
4: Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's yeah. That's where it comes from for sure. Uh, yeah. Although I have to set the record straight on Obama. Like, I take no credit for that because I've often said that it's more important to be in the right place at the right time and pay attention than it is to be smart. And I just happened to be in that Senate you district. You just
0: described my life.
1: <laughs> Way too <laughs> humble. Way too humble.
4: Oh, mine too. But, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I just happened to be like I sometimes describe it uh, in the birthing room at the outset of his political career. I just got. To watch the embryo come out right and it was extraordinary. <laughs> <shortened>. but anyway <laughs> no, uh, but, yeah, uh, uh, well but to the real question, I mean yeah there are a number of responses I would have to that. Uh, I mean one of them is um, you know like I stopped going to mass when I was 16 years old when I, you know when I left high school and and that's when I stopped trying to th- thinking that that the point of like anything was trying to get into heaven. Right. And the point of politics isn't to try to get into heaven, at least not in that way. Right. And one of the problems is that you've that you gotta figure out ways, or the other more direct and maybe less opaque you know, observation is we gotta start stop treating political alliances or coalitions like like they're joining a frat, right? Um because the whole point is to find ways to connect uh, or to fashion a majority, right, an electoral majority that can prevail on on issues. You know, in 1991, when, um, you know, when Edwin, Edwards uh, you know, defeated David Duke, the former Klansman and Nazi, uh, in the governor's race in uh, Louisiana, like I did an interview with, you know, one of the Pacifica stations afterward, I think, And like they asked me, so is it disconcerting that Duke got close to a majority of the white vote in the state, in the statewide race? And I said, yeah, from one perspective, you could say it is. But the nice thing about the Voting Rights Act is that you're getting a majority of the white votes, it doesn't win it anymore. So it's not. So what's important isn't that, you know, Duke got close to a majority of white votes in the gubernatorial race, it's that a large enough percentage of white voters um, were so un, unaffected or unperturbed about the idea of voting the same way that a lot of blacks voted that they were able to beat this guy, right? And that's kind of the point here, right? The point isn't, but with the point of politics isn't who's who's going to get into heaven and who isn't, right? The point of politics, and besides, right? people grow, people change, and motivations are complex, right? I mean, just, I mean, not everybody, look, look, I keep going back, um, you know, to Larry Sabato's numbers after 2016, and as, and as best I can tell, these are the best, right? I mean, this is the best, uh, I mean, estimate, the most um, reliable estimate of how people actually voted in 2016, that between six and a half, roughly, and just over nine million people who voted for Trump, had voted either for Obama once uh, or more, and for Sanders in the Democratic primaries. Hmm. So that tells you millions
0: some, of people, right?
4: Millions. So millions. it's not just reducible to everybody who voted for Trump as a racist, right? I mean, so there's a some lot. Some of, of them
0: are, but that's oh obvious. yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, uh,
4: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, some. I mean, absolutely are some of them who like voted for Biden are. Right. I mean, so Biden himself is. <laughs> well, well, depending on how you want to count it. Yeah. Old Jim well,
0: Crow just... Joe. <laughs> so um, I just want to take a crack at at the the pushback that you put out there, Crystal, because my line yeah. on this has always been I'm not going to give an inch on policy, but I'll give a mile on messaging. And on messaging, you put your best foot forward and right. your best foot is the areas where you're 60, 70, 80 percent in the polls. And that's how you build a coalition. And that's how you win. Right. Um, but, but what I wanted to ask you is, I was talking uh, with Crystal about this last night. You know, I I didn't know. I just learned that you grew up in the Jim Crow South, and yeah, mainly right. And so it, I know I know myself, and I know had I grown up as a person of color in the Jim Crow South, I almost certainly would have become a black nationalist. <laughs> I have like no doubt about that. So my uh. question to you is, how did you did did you ever like? Did that ever appeal to you, number one? And number two, how did you avoid the pitfalls of, like, fighting racist fire with racist fire, which just puts us in that perpetual cycle of terribleness?
4: Uh, right. Well, yeah, that's an interesting question, too. I mean, you know, so I don't, you, you know, do a lot of biography talk, but, um, well, a couple things. I mean, one of them is, look, like, you, you know, I turned 18 in 1965, right? Um, so... Like, I was in the, and was, you know, a middle class high school student, right? I mean, prior to that, basically. So I was in, like, the, you know, the demographic of people who were most likely to be in, in, enthralled by Malcolm X. And I was in that demographic, and I was part of it, right? Uh, and when I was in high school, for instance, I mean, we would see, um, you know, I'd see, Um, civil rights, um, I mean, demonstrators, uh, you know, out in front of a couple of lunch counters downtown on Canal Street in New Orleans, you know, getting beaten and dragged, dragged into uh, paddy wagons and whatnot. And my friends and I, you know, were simultaneously impressed by their, you know, courage and the militants and kind of turned off by the fact that they seemed to be taking the beatings, right? Because, you know, adolescent men or what adolescent men are and by the way i'll just say for the record that that's why adolescent men shouldn't or adolescent anybody shouldn't have you know, access to military-grade weapons i think we've seen in the last uh, months or, and days for that matter what what can happen when they have access mm-hmm. um i was in college when um, you know stokely carmichael Shouted Black Power on the Meredith March and I came into the movement basically, uh, through black power and 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 anti-Vietnam war movement. It was also the case though that I had the leavening of a kind of having come up in a kind of left inclined household too. Um, and I mean I remember like my dad saying things like when I was a kid about how. Uh, um, you know, like the orthodox, um, I'm a liberal line was that, um, you know, the Jim Crow regime was was in, was imposed in the late 19th century as part of, um, you know, the accession to power of the white working class, right, uh, after populism. And my dad would always say, gee, it's kind of funny, isn't it? You think if they actually came to power, they might want to do something for themselves, right, and not just, right? But to be down on black people, so so I was so so I always had the advantage, I guess, of having um, a class and political economic based based understanding of what even apparent racial in, injustice you know, was all about. So, and, but you know, I mean, that was nothing special.
0: Just just to follow up on that real quick, um, you know, I've I've uh, studied Malcolm X a lot, and I think he's probably the greatest speaker of all time. And oh, yeah. pre-MECCA Malcolm was a very different person than post-MECCA Malcolm, and that's you right. know, widely understood. Um, do you remember feeling any sort of way at the time when Malcolm was like quite explicitly accusing Martin Luther King of being a, a sellout?
4: Uh, well, look, um, I have a couple of good, good friends, a little bit older than I am who went to the March on Washington in 1963, um, who left uh, before King spoke. And they left before King spoke because, well, first of all, you may remember that you had to be dressed like you're going to church to go to that march. And it was at the end of August in D.C. (laughs) So you know what the end of August in D.C. is like, to be standing out there in that sun. But also King at that point was, you know, was... From a certain kind of left perspective, just another preacher, right? Uh, the '63 March on Washington didn't get to be about King until well after King was dead, right? And mm-hmm. um, and um, and uh, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and the William Jones, William P. Jones, has done a great book on this. The title, which I'm blocking now, but it's on uh, the labor roots of the March on Washington. For instance, uh, that, that's a rough approximation. You can find it, um, but. Um, So, like King wasn't, you know, the reverent or the reverential figure when he was alive and active during the movement that he became after his death, right? So it's not like young people in particular were um, uncritical of King or of the big six, even young people in the South, right? Um, And I mean, and see, this is one of the, Several disservices that I think Ava DuVernay's movie on Selma did, like she miss, be, partly because of her pathological, I would say, um, well, I mean, desire not to acknowledge the actual role that Lyndon Johnson had in 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 in, you know, in the Selma events. She um, fabricates uh, a tension between James Foreman and the other SNCC people and King as they're being young and hot-headed and uh, jealous of King, uh, which in the first place is silly because Foreman was actually older than King and was a veteran uh, of the Korean War and, and had been an organizer for a long time. But also the reason that the SNCC people were pissed at SCLC was that they knew or felt, and turns out that they were right, that King always had a back channel open to the Johnson White House and that they were, uh, I mean, negotiating in a way that the stick people thought was behind the backs of the local movement. Right. So so I guess that's all to say, yeah, I mean, Malcolm. Well, I tell you that my son says about Malcolm now, and I think he's probably right, that if Malcolm were alive today, he would be um, a great stand up comedian. (laughs) and it really would I think that's correct right Uh, but um, so you know but there's that sense though see there's a broader um, story that needs to be taken into account or taken account of in some way about how um, how oratory right came to stand in for organizing Mm. right Uh, and that's happened in the 60s also Uh, I mean pardon me Todd 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 Gitlin did a book excuse me called the whole world is watching the mass media in the making and unmaking of the new left came out in 1980 I believe you know which is a great examination of this right because you get um, 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 groups that are organizations of organizers right that aren't particularly connected with, uh, building and cultivating discrete constituencies of people, you know, who had like names and addresses and paid dues and I mean, stuff like that. What, what happens is, and you know, I'm not saying that that's, you know, I'm not saying that, that I am mean, necessarily to disparage those movements. I was in them myself, but, though that wouldn't stop me from disparaging them if they needed disparagement. <laughs> but, um, but like, so you're trying to stop the war, for instance, right? Or one thing like that, or, or something like that. Then, then then, there's something like, you know, throwing your body into the ge- gears of the machine. That's not the same thing as trying to organize for the long term to change the direction of, yeah. of, of policy. Um,
1: How do you think that it's come to be that... Um one of the greatest allies of the status quo is oftentimes the congressional black caucus. And what does that say about our politics? The fact that that is the case
0: tells me well, crystal ball's racist. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Could be, I, don't know. Well, <laughs> I guess we'll hear that before the day's over, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, look, I mean, you see, th- this is the thing that drives me nuts about that. Right. right. I mean, um, in some ways, to me, like it's 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 more meaningful, um, or, or it's less meaningful that I in, in, know the Jim Crow order, you know, what up close and personal. Though I will say that the first time I saw the film, The Battle of Algiers, in a movie theater, I thought, Wow, I know this movie, I've been in this movie. But but that's less meaningful, I think, than the fact that I just happened to be. Uh, again, this is the matter of being in the right place at the right time and paying attention. But just happened to be in the South, living through the moment of um, racial transition in urban politics in the 1970s, right? Uh, because you get to see that in, in a way that sort of is like beneath the campaign rhetoric, right? Like beneath uh, you know the large, large headlines and stuff, right? Um, so. So it was possible to see, right, that, uh, that, that you know there's a class character, right, to um, ethnic pluralist politics in the U.S. or like any kind of pluralist politics, like in the U.S. some I mean, interest group politics in the U.S. Um, and and you would ex- so what political incorporation. Means concretely, is bringing groups who who had therefore been left outside of governing coalitions into them as fully participant groups, right? But everything comes down to what the terms are on which the groups are or the group representatives, which is the first issue, are in, incorporated, right? So if, for instance, you're part of political alliance at the local level and you can say the same thing about um about national democratic uh, politics with the cbc too like you're what you're doing is finding ways to define and articulate the interests and concerns of the constituency that you purport to represent that fit within the larger steering imperatives of this governing coalition you're part of, right? Does that make sense, or does that sound too much like a political science lecture?
1: I think it makes I, sense. I mean, you're saying effectively the way that these coalitions that were outside of the political process is brought through was through these representatives who had their own sort of interests involved, right?
4: Right, right, and, and I mean, if and, and like, if the axi- if if the axis on which you understand in insurgent politics to, to operate is inclusion, exclusion. Well, I mean in what well, I mean inclusion, so if you want to overcome exclusion to be in included among you know the groups whose interests are taken into account, and I mean, who wouldn't want that after being you know excluded, right? I mean, just I mean for instance I you know I worked in Atlanta's city government like in three different capacities in the 70s. Uh, and the very beginning of the 80s, and one of them, uh, or in all of them, I could see clearly that, well, one of the th- things that happens or that changes with the coming of black government is that, you know, black people in neighborhoods don't have to, you know, do the kind of work I was doing in Fayetteville, North Carolina, when I first left left college, which is jamming like 500 people into a city council chamber to demand like a street light in the housing project, right? Well, one of the things that racial transition means is that you can go down to the zoning board and get a variance, right, or just, or to highways and streets and, like, sign up for, for a traffic light if you fill out the proper forms. And you're also more likely to know somebody who works in the agency and you're more likely, you know, to be able to get your kid, like, a summer internship or whatever, whatever. So these things matter, and that's how political loyalties are formed, but they're not formed over big issues like Ending dispossession, right, or like changing, um, you know, the the thrust of 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 the local economic development agenda, right? Because those are are the big ticket items that that um, one aspires to be included into. Not what I mean, not to overcome, right? And you can extrapolate that up. i like I said, to the national level. Um and see, like why would you expect that the congressional black caucus would be any more left inclined than any other mainstream Democrats, right? Because they're black. Uh and isn't that a kind of racism too, by the way? I mean just to told
0: you. It,
4: <laughs> toss the racism around, right? <laughs> uh so yeah, uh, and I mean, look, um, especially in the last decade or even more recently than that, I, you know, 2015 feels more more and more like to me like a significant cutoff date, right? Uh, and I think that Sanders um, in, insurgency has a lot to do with that, right? Because that's the moment at which for the first time in a hell of a long time like in American politics, um, um, a serious national political voice laid out um, a working class centered program for political change. I mean, I remember in the first or second debate in the 2016 campaign when like some jerk off economist, and I apologize for the redundancy in the reference, <laughs> uh, um, had done an op ed showing that the free public higher ed uh, the idea, which is one of several that the Sanders campaign took from the old Labor Party program, which we were happy to let them have, um, was like uh, um, you know, unnecessarily costly because you know two-thirds of people who go to college don't graduate or only two-thirds graduate, whatever. So the questioner in the debate picks this up uh, and tosses it at Bernie, and Bernie just cut him off at his knees and said, no, that's not the point, right? I mean, this isn't what we're talking about, right? Like, right? Like the point isn't, that we need to evaluate policies by what we can afford and what we we can't, but figure out what we need, right, for America's working people, and then figure out how we're going to pay for what we need, right? And, like, this is the first time anybody said that or anything like that in national politics that I can remember, right, in a hell of a long time. But, and, and part of the problem here is that... Um, the way that uh, you know, racial politics or, the, or it's an interest group ethnic politics has evolved over the last 20 years or so is such that th- the only significant metric of unjust inequality it, uh, that's appeared in American political discourse and, and social policy discourse is what comes down to group disparities, right? I mean, to racial disparities. And as you guys know, and maybe enough of your listeners know, my fr- friend and colleague and comrade, I'm um, Walter Ben Michaels, and I have been saying for years now that the thing about disparity as a model of social justice is that um, it's a model. Uh, according to which, one one percent of the population of the country can control ninety percent of the resources. But as long as you know twelve percent of that one percent is black and fourteen percent is Hispanic and it's half women and whatever, whatever, then we have a just society. And I've been saying, and as I've been saying on college campuses lately, from the standpoint of an ethics or a philosophy or even a political theory class, you know, that's that's a model of the just society that's as defensible. Um, in principle, as any other model, right, Um, except, of course, to the extent that it's presented as a model of justice for, I don't know, say, black people, hypothetically speaking, because the problem with that model for an abstraction called black people is that if the society is, as ours has been, becoming more and more unequal across the board, then the then the number of people who are outside the 1% is going to get bigger and bigger. And for historic reasons, black people are more likely to be outside the 1% than white people are, then, uh, then are likely to be a lot more black people who are getting the fuzzy end of the lollipop, as my son puts it, <laughs> um, you know, under that model of justice, certainly then than there would be under a social democratic understanding of, of, of what a just society is, which, which is about and they're reducing inequalities for everybody. Mm-hmm. So anyway, since 2015, right? Um, there's there's been like um, what what strikes me as an incredible furor coming from black opinion shaping um, elites, right? Um, with with respect to you know commitment or, or demanding commitment that the only um, metric of social justice that we operate with in the society is that um, disparitarian one, right? Uh, and, and after 2016, in particular, right? I mean, of course, it's long been uh, you know a tendency in American political discourse to racialize the idea of the working class, right? I mean, this goes back so the role of the social sciences in the immediate po- post war years of turning class into a category of culture right like instead of political economy so you know, everybody's basic notion of working class is you know a beefy usually white guy in, in a flannel or plaid or a flannel shirt and a hard hat and he's usually you know a backward catholic or or i mean some kind of conservative right um, but after twenty fifteen, right, coming from you know the corners of the society or the segments of the public of public life, right, which is who they are, right, from the Twitterverse and the MSNBC and 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 and, and, and uh, the internet left or whatever, but then you know, all of a sudden. Um, Working class becomes um, e- equivalent to white racist, and any effort to appeal to um, a working class program or concerns of of the working class becomes automatically um, s- vulnerable to a charge of surreptitiously, at at best, trying to appease um, white white racists. So in one fell swoop you can't be hispanic or be black right anymore and be working class right I mean, even though black and hispanic people are disproportionately among the working class right, right. so that just tells you there's some ideology going on.
0: yeah it it reminds me of all those articles that would equate like bernie's populism with trump's fake populism or I mean, they did a Bernie with Bolsonaro, like they, however, they could sort of blur the lines between a real left politics and a right wing fake populism, they would do it. What I wanted to ask you is, where does the energy from the Bernie movement go? Because there's this little contradiction that I can't wrap my mind around on the left, where uh, on the one hand, I feel like movements need strong leaders to give people a spark and give people that interest and get the ball rolling. But at the same time, whenever there is a strong leader on the left, over time, that egalitarian sentiment on the left comes out and the bottom-up wants more control. So do these movements have to be bottom-up? Can they be top-down? And where does that Bernie energy go?
4: Right. Well, that's another really important question. I mean, I'll tell you, like... Um, after the 2016 election, uh, and I was naive, wrong about this. Uh, part of me just kind of wished that Bernie would go back to the Senate because I thought that we had put together um, enough of, of a self-generating uh, force um, around, but um, well, especially around. Uh, I mean, the seven unions that made up, uh, I mean, the Labor for Bernie coalition in 2016 um i mean i was wrong right because that the history of um progressive politics in the u.s has been so uh had 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 by that point like been so kind of um i'm trying to well i'm trying to find a non-pejorative way of describing <laughs> uh but had become so accustomed to doing the same kind of thing over and over again, right? To mobilizing like instead of organizing really is what it comes down to. Uh, to go back to Macquarie, Um, That when people went back to their states and this makes sense too, right? Cause the, you know, what well, with the state level races and the off year races were in, important, right? But the impulse was always like to double down on deepening the same coalition's around the same bases right on the same kind of stuff, right the same laundry lists of issues that never you know that never really got to the big big picture and never really strove to kind of broaden the base to people who didn't talk to us all, already because, because everybody's always in election mode and there, and there are two radically different approaches to you know, organizing right? Um, right. I mean, during an election, you want to move as quickly as possible to find a message as diffusely as possible, you know, just at the level of, of door knocking, right? You want to drop off the literature and not talk to anybody uh, and cover as many houses as you can, whatever. In an organizing campaign, you want to do just the opposite. You want, as I often say, the old lady to invite you in and to offer you tea and cookies and talk about our grandbabies, and you find that connections that you have with her and try to build on them and broaden the base. But when you're operating under the pressure of the election cycle, you can't really do that kind of work, but that's the kind of work that you have to do to broaden the base of a movement, right, to talk to people that don't already agree with, right? Um, so it turned out, so we didn't get anywhere much, right, or or get anywhere near at, as far as I, in my, you know more optimistic moments that hope that we might have between 2026 and 2020. 2020, it was different, right? Things, things stuck, right? Uh, I mean, it's not just that I mean, Medicare for all was the big winner in every primary. No, what, no matter how Bernie did, or even in South Carolina, right? I mean, Medicare for all won uh, when, and even though Clyburn cleaned Bernie's clock, and, you know, we worked in South Carolina on the ground then, and we had like 18,000 people sign pledges and, you know, mainly black, mainly uh, working people who have said that they would prefer not to vote for anybody who didn't support, uh, I mean, Medicare for All. Now they voted for Calibum, Um, but still that was something, it was something to build on. And, 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 and what we also saw was that once you know, ordinary people started to think about what single-payer healthcare actually looked like and how easily it could be won and to discuss questions like, you know, just transition to indemnify people who would be displaced and so forth and so on, then it was natural that they also started thinking about other um, public goods that it made sense to want and to demand, like free public higher education and stuff. So it's possible to do it, right? Um, now, what happened was, and, you know, I'm not going to, any crazy conspiracy theory but the pandemic just kind of you know undercut all 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 those efforts and then it was amazing to see how quickly after the murder of george george floyd um you know the sort of um you know that that element you know within the democratic party that would really like to put together a coalition that can you know, sometimes win right, like the Whigs in the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, but that doesn't in- include the labor movement, right? I mean, went to work as uh, as um, you know, you know, carrying the torch for racial justice, right? Uh, and and we know what Jeff Bezos's idea of, of you know, racial justice is, apart from giving 100 million dollars to. Uh, van van jones um so that's another part part of the story here right that there is and and, i mean you remember also between 2016 and 2020 uh well at the racial justice talking heads and you know uh what i'm enjoying and read is my go-to for this and but she's she's ultimately kind of indistinguishable indistinguishable among a lot of them uh, yeah, but their line was um, that Bernie didn't speak to black people, didn't address black people's concerns, while polls were showing that Bernie was actually polling higher among blacks than among any other right, democratic constituency. And the way that that goes is the only way that that works is for them like to cover their ears and keep screaming, but that's not what black people really want, that's not what black people right, I mean, really want. And when you get down to it, it's their job for that not to be what black people, what, I mean, really want. Um, Cause that's, you know, because this is like a class well, it's like class politics.
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: But, but do
1: you, go well, ahead, well, wait,
4: I want to say one more thing about this because I want to be really clear about this. That it's time for us now, it's beyond time for us to recognize that showing photographs of civil rights demonstrations and making references to the high period of civil rights activism does not perfume the fact that this is a uh, not a working class politics but it's an anti-popular politics and we just have to those of us who want to understand ourselves as kind of serious progressives or or people committed to justice and equality just have to recognize this, this stuff for what it is, and it is a class politics. It is not. It, it's it's a politics of the class of people who would expect to benefit from narrowing the racial wealth gap. There's no other and clearer way to put it, which is which, for the record, is a, a gap that exists only between the 10% of richest black people and the 10% of richest white people
1: when you say this stuff is a kind of class politics, just put a finer point on that. What do you mean exactly?
4: Um, I mean, um, this this understanding of um, identity-based politics or, or disparitarian politics, right? Um, but, but, but the politics that assumes that... Look, like I saw um, a few weeks ago, I, um, um, I saw um, a documentary film on uh, the Vietnamese American community in in New Orleans. Uh, and it was put on by the film festival. And the film festival and the, and the film opened or was preceded by the land acknowledgment statement, right? And I, and I don't move in those circles, so I don't see a lot of land land acknowledgments. But this one had the land acknowledgment, which always seemed to me to be the same thing as Beating somebody's ass and then talking shit about their mother after you beat them, right? I mean, like you've won already, you've you've taken the land, and then you come back and say, "Well, I just want to acknowledge that we took it from
1: Just remember, we took this mm-hmm. land. Oh yeah, right,
4: right, right, exactly, exactly. But so they run through the list of all of the Native American groups that had lived there before 1718 or after 1718, and then you know the blacks who were enslaved, the black, what well, African. Burial ground on which the city was built and so forth and so on. Uh, and I mean, the labor of blacks who had built the city. And and I was waiting foolishly for a reference to the upwards of 20,000 Irish immigrants who died digging the New Basin Canal in the 1830s. And it was none. Right? Uh, it's uh, that so, anti Irish bigotry. Right, right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's what you could say. But it's <laughs> like, but that just underscores how counter-solidaristic this kind of politics is, right? Um, so suffering, well, suffering like, is, first of all, not a good way to approach politics, I, mean, I don't think. But, but like if you're doing that, right, then you, you have to measure the gradations of suffering and who suffered more and my suffering is worse than your suffering. And, and I mean, that's what I mean about um, um, treating politics like it's trying to audition for a fret.
3: Right.
1: Right. And do you take any um, are you hopeful at all about the fact that you have near historic levels of Americans who tell pollsters they are pro union, that you Mm -hmm. have, um, you know, a strike wave that is going across the country, that you have uh, efforts to organize Amazon, to organize Starbucks for the first time that right. you have people even outside of the union movement who are just quitting their jobs, just resigning the mass resignations. You have fast food workers who are en masse all getting together and saying, we're out of here, we're turning the lights off, or we're leaving our note on the door. There's definitely something happening among labor that the American people seem to be on the side of. Um, mm. Do you? What do you make of all of that and does that make you hopeful?
4: Well, here's what I think. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, lately I've been going for um, you know the analogy of a T intersection because there's one close to my apartment on my d- daily walk. Uh, but I think that that's where we are. Right? I think that, that both nationally and globally, this system that gets summarized as ne- neoliberalism may, may very well have gotten to a point at which it's no longer capable of delivering enough stuff to enough people in, in any given society, to sustain itself as a nominally, uh, I mean, democratic order, right? And if that's the case, there are only two directions you can go. Um, one is a sharp turn to the right toward um, authoritarianism, of of whatever sort, and the other is a turn in the direction of what we can say broadly is like, um, you know, the sensibility of social democracy. Right. The, that, uh, at, you know, then approach the government that centers more on um, public goods and uh, and and um, active attention to the public welfare. Right. And I think that's where we are in this country now. I think we're at that point in a lot of places. Right. I mean, you can look around the globe. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and, um, and. And. Part of me, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. Um, four or five months ago, I wasn't convinced that we'd make 2022, right? Mm. I, I, I think that there's a good chance we'll make 2022. I hope. I don't know. Um, but, but I'm feeling that more and more that the most likely outcome within the next couple of years is going to be, um, you know, the equivalent. Of, um, of an authoritarian putsch, right? Either with the fig leaf of constitutionalism, which control of the federal um, bench does for you know gives the right now that fig leaf. Um, we're, we're with or without the fig leaf of, of constitutionalism, and that and that that happens like it's not going to. Um, Well, the pendulum's not going to go back the other way, at least not in in my lifetime, which admittedly isn't likely to be all that long, but you get the drift here. Uh, And, I mean, I don't... um, And in some ways, you know, the greatest frustration for me, and several of my friends have been saying this too, actually, is not just that this is happening, right? Like, it's bad enough this is happening, right? I mean, that's why... Yeah, you know, I did this piece in in, uh, in non back in the summer, called "The Whole Country is the Reichstag," and and it opens with with uh, with um, some dialogue from the Eugene Inesco play *Rhinoceros*. Um, but but I, uh, well, to make this point that that it's not just that it's happening, but that so so few people, even among the ranks of those. Who can recognize that it's happening seem capable of taking in what the implications are and are I mean likely to be, Um, and uh, I mean, um, you know, the attack on on uh, the reproductive freedom is just like the tip of the iceberg, uh, and we know that's coming obviously in one way or another. It probably would be smarter for the right wing who um, Amy. Comey Barrett. who went to uh, high school. Uh, I think she was a freshman when my, when, you know, when my little cousin was a senior at a Catholic girl, girl school in New Orleans. Uh, you know, you know, she doesn't seem to be the sharpest knife knife in the drawer. But it seems to me like it would be smarter for them just to keep a shard dangling there, so that um, the um, so that the Clintonites can keep you know trying to hinge a politics or a fundraising effort on. Yeah. Saving That's choice, true. right? Um, but labor also, right? That, right? I mean everything that we've gotten would be turned turn turn turned turned around. And I mean everything else. And look, I mean like the gun control stuff. I mean what I mean they've 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 already, right, um, opened it or, or set the stage for um <clears throat> for um, you know, brown shirt killings, right, like at random all over the country, right, people wanted it. I mean, it, so what I'm trying to say is that, that, that I think there's a very ugly, very nasty potential out there of the sort that most Americans don't want to um, imagine, right, uh, and the fact that they don't want to imagine it or think that they can escape it or whatever they think, I don't know if that's even the right verb, um you know it just makes it tougher to think about trying to you know, do anything to preempt it and i don't know that we can do anything much to preempt it anyway yeah.
1: so I mean. it's a dire warning um on a happier note you're starting a podcast i understand and i want our oh, audience to, to <laughs> know about that so there you go that's gonna i think that's gonna save us that's what i'm that's what i'm hoping for <laughs> professor
4: uh, yeah, the podcast is called Class Class Matters podcast, um, and uh, it should be available. On, we should kick it off in about a week or so, so people can can look first at the Debs Jones Douglas Institute's website, DJD Institute dot org, or at the Class Matters podcast uh, okay. on website, and we will let you guys know too as soon as we put it out. So maybe you can spread the word for us also.
1: We would be more than happy to do that. And we are extraordinarily grateful for your time and your and in the book insights. Yes, absolutely.
4: Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. And enjoy the rest of your day.
1: You too.
0: All right. So that was Adolf Reed. Brilliant guy. Oh. Absolutely. Brilliant guy. Um,
1: he's been working on a book that's set to come out about, um, his childhood growing up in the Jim Crow South and on just like a day-to-day basis, what that was like and how it shaped every part of your life and your experience. So something else for people to look forward to from him, because he is such an incredible writer and thinker and puts things together in ways that, you know, immediately make sense, but that you may not have thought of before.
0: Um, if you were born black in the Jim Crow South, would you have been a black nationalist?
1: I mean, <laughs> it's hard to say, but I think I would profoundly hate white people forever.
0: That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is that I would have been like, Malcolm X is the only person telling the truth. And I'm 100% on board. I would have had the suit. I would have been Nation of Islam. I would have been hardcore with it. It's kind of amazing to me that you can grow up in that situation. And then now he's in a place where, I mean, he solidly left. it. Does he identify as a Marxist? Or no? I think so. Okay. And and he's just focuses on class like a laser. You know what I mean?
1: Well, he's a perfect example, too, of, like, obviously he's not sugarcoating racism or racial injustice or the history of slavery and segregation and all of those things. But he actually wants to win. And he actually wants to not just have moral rectitude to fall back on, but to actually change things and make lives better for the working class writ large, not just the sort of like popular conception of the working class.
0: Yeah. um, I forgot what I was going (laughs) to (laughs) say. I had a good point, but it was like, <laughs> it just went right out of my ear.
1: What did you think of his sort of dire predictions about the country? I mean the looming I mean his backdrop is the the looming tidal wave.
0: So I don't I'd have no problem whatsoever with the dire prediction for the country and it's it's reasonable to say those yeah. things. My issue is with people who are resigned to it. The yes. doomers, the nihilists, for yes. like that's going to happen, and now I'm actively going to do absolutely nothing to try to stop it, and also shit on you if you do try to stop it.
1: Or the people who are like accelerationists, like I actually want that to happen, and then I I have this yeah. sort of magical belief that something good is going to come out on the other side.
0: Yeah, I mean there are um, there are somewhat coherent and logical arguments for accelerationism. I just think they happen to be wrong, you know.
1: I just don't think. I mean, things are too chaotic to have this. Anytime you have this, okay, this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen. Yeah, no, it's,
0: it's like shut up, just you, shut, you, up, you shut up, shut up, shut up. You have no idea what you're <laughs> like, talking there are about. No and historically, that that's be the case. historically, the worst things get, the, the worst, worst they, they get. get. Yeah, it's like this. The, this is what happens because if if the accelerationists were correct, well then George W. Bush would have <clears throat> excuse me ushered in a utopia. Right. Because George W. Bush did every negative thing under the sun. He did illegal wars, killed hundreds of thousands of people, did torture Guantanamo Bay, crashed Wait. the economy a thousand times you over, cut taxes Barack for the rich. Obama
1: was a utopia. <laughs>
0: <No>. <laughs> yeah, but and that's that's the. I mean, if the accelerationists were right, and then maybe Obama would have actually been the Obama everybody wanted him to be, and he would have been the next FDR, and then he would have brought in great times, and then there would have been a grain of truth in the accelerationist argument. But that didn't happen. What happened was the further right the Republicans went, the further right the Democrats followed them. And so it was this cycle of perpetual shittiness and dragging the Overton window further and further and further and further right.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, the way he described it is effectively like they propose something terrible Democrats going to say we're going to do something slightly less terrible and then we all celebrate that as a victory when that's what happens instead of the, you know, fully terrible thing.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask him that I didn't get around to, and I think you actually wanted to ask him it too, and we just didn't get around to it, is his canceling of a DSA speech.
1: Yeah, I wanted to, I did kind of want to get into that. but it, but did that, that
0: sharpen his criticism, you think? When he got, uh, just so everybody understands, so he got canceled from giving a DSA speech.
1: So uh, let me tell the 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 whole story. The the full context is on the table because, uh, so this was during the pandemic. He wanted to talk to, uh, this was a DSA chapter in New York, about the fact that he thought for multiracial organizing, Much like the critique that he has of sort of identity politics here, that he thought it would be more useful rather than there was a time during the pandemic where everything was framed in terms of disproportionate impact on um, black people. And that the focus, the only lens that was really consistently being applied was a racial one. And he had a critique of that. And he wanted to give a speech to uh, this DSA chapter in New York about that. And there was a there was a lot of upset around that and people who felt that was wrong and that was tone deaf, et cetera. And after it seemed like there were going to be trolls who crashed that I think it was going to be done by Zoom or something, ultimately, this talk, he and DSA both decided this isn't worth it. We're not going to do it. So yeah, that's if, what happened. Okay. But no, do I think that it changed or sharpened his critique? No. He's been – this is – his politics for a long time.
0: If as a leftist, you can't find solidarity with Adolf Reed, I <laughs> then I, I mean, it's like, it's funny. Cause I, you know, I talked to Vosh recently and a lot of people, a lot of people's reactions. I was like, this is wonderful. Two people on the left, like having a conversation and talking it out. And it's like in a world where Vosh and I couldn't have a conversation, it literally beyond impossible for any positive thing to get done organized by the left. Because if you can't take people who are that ideologically similar on the spectrum and, like, not just devolve into personal grievance and sniping and egos being bruised and hatred of each other, then we're screwed. Then we're screwed. So it's like there's a broader problem with the left. And there was a great shoe tweet about this the other day that you brought to my attention where she said something like, I keep thinking about this CIA passage where they said, like, bicker over little precise language. language." language. And it's like. (laughs) Is this whole thing like a CIA op, how the left is at each other's throats all the time? Maybe, maybe there's some Twitter accounts out there that really look like
1: or like somebody at
0: the FBI sitting there like
1: or like Bernie tweeted something.
0: Oh, I love this. Yeah. Pretty innocuous
1: about very standard issue rhetoric about. Um, choice and abortion rights from maybe five years ago. Yeah,
0: say the... No, just say the thing. You don't need to give the specifics. Bernie said something like women have a right to... to women have a right have to, to abort- make, their own make their own decision. And I,
1: it, it's my view that if it was men who were having the babies, this wouldn't be a question. And, of course, there was upset <laughs> The responses were... It was, you know, <laughs> you didn't say birthing people and it's... How
0: dare you say women, Bernie? You better use the term... This is there, so transphobic.
1: Right, there are... Right, so... <laughs> it's like this guy is with you. Like he's not, tra- he's, he's with you on everything. And this is what you're spending your, your time and emotional energy over. And I pulled up the statement of what DSA said about, about Adolf Reed Adolf when Reed. they
0: canceled him, literally, canceled him from giving a speech.
1: So, according to the New York Times, Reid's chosen topic was unsparing. He planned to argue the left's intense focus on the disproportionate impact of the coronavirus on black people undermined multiracial organizing, which he sees as key to health and economic justice. Notices went up, anger built. The organization's Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color caucus stated, quote, that talk would be re- reactionary, class reductionist, and at best tone deaf, quote, We cannot be afraid to discuss race and racism because it could get mishandled by racists. That's cowardly and cedes power to the racial capitalists. Adolf Reed has never been afraid to talk about racism. I mean, he's literally about to release a book about his life growing up in the Jim Crow South and what that was all about. I mean, the man is a scholar of race and is completely unafraid of talking about any of these topics. So it's just a mischaracterization of his politics and what he wanted to, to bring there. But... It's fine to have a debate over what he said, which is a provocative speech, but to have the sense of like- even, I don't even think that's provocative. I mean, it it could be provocative, okay? Really? But sure. Yeah, to like, say everybody's like- Everybody's
0: dying from the pandemic, and you want the messaging from the left to be, let's only talk about it when it's people of color who die from look, the pandemic? I
1: think it's fair to have a debate about it, right? But to just say, I can't hear this view at all, like we can't even- we can't even talk look, about this? because
0: people... Okay, look, he gets accused of it, I get accused of it, you get accused of it of, like, class reductionism. That is race reductionism. Literally, to say the only way you're allowed to message about COVID is to say to center uh, communities of color. The only way you could talk about it. Right. So, like, if you bring up that white people are dying from COVID, too, it's like, pff, fucking Ku Klux Klan member. It's like...
1: You're pandering races. Shut racist. the
0: fuck up, CIA. This is the... New York DSA, <laughs> CIA.
1: And this is the pushback I brought to him. It's like, it's... it the... The instant reaction is you're throwing people of color under
0: the bus. You're throwing to talk about everybody getting COVID. I, everybody includes you're coddled, people of color. You're
1: coddling, <laughs> racist. Like, you're coddling racist. How's that coddling <laughs> I mean, but that's the idea, and I think he said it very, he said it very well. Basically, like the working class got defined down to just white racist. and then to even talk about. Working class but, means that you, you're you really secretly – like, see, you that, may say you're not, but we know secretly what you're really after here is racism. I
0: remember being so confused the first time I got hit with that criticism because I, I tweeted something about the working class. And some other lefty interpreted me saying the working class like I was only talking about white people. And I was like, who said white people? I said the working class. When I talk about the working class, in my mind, I have – Literally, the Rainbow Coalition. I have every, you know, color, creed, background, ethnicity in my mind when I talk about it. Yes. So when they read into it that it's like, who's really being racist here? I didn't say white people. You said white people. You're saying I said white people. I never fucking said white people. Right.
1: Yes. It's just
0: so obnoxious. Of
1: course, by the numbers, white people are less likely to be working class than other uh, disenfranchised groups. So. Very, very interesting to talk to him. Um, His intellect is incredible. He's been uh, a great activist, organizer, and thinker. He's very humble about like, oh, I was just at the right place at the right time and paying attention. But that paying attention part is actually really uh, key. And also that's a skill. In the book about growing up in the Jim Crow South, he said part of why he felt like he was able to kind of have an outsider's lens to it is because he was back and forth between New Orleans and New York enough so that he was constantly having to relearn what the codes were and what you could say and to whom and how to be in this store or in that neighborhood or whatever. And so it never became just ingrained where you don't even know it's just the the water you're swimming in and so that's part of how he was able to to really have a full picture of what was going on. but it takes a very astute person, to be able to pay attention and observe what's going on when it's just the way that things are. And that's th- something that I think he is absolutely incredible at.
0: You're right. Uh, and But it's also true that anybody worth a shit is going to react like he reacted. Where he's like downplaying it and he's like, look, right place, right time type stuff. There's nobody who's worth a shit who's like, he's a humble I'm person. the shit, bro. I figured wow. it. it's like, He's earned no. it at this
1: point, in my view. At this stage in his life, if he was like, yeah, I'm all that," I would definitely agree. <laughs>
0: It's a good fit for some folks, I guess, but a very small percentage can get away with the, you know, the chest beating and macho, macho approach to talking about your own legacy, your life, you know. Anyway, all right crash landing to the podcast um (laughs) all right guys we love you everybody go subscribe on crystal kylan friends five dollars a month gets you the video of every podcast and it gets it to you a day early and uh if you don't want to do that of course you can subscribe on substack for free and get the audio version and get it a day later or just go to your favorite podcast platform and get it that way but anyway we love you guys thank you to all the people who do sub on substack you mean the world to us have a good one
1: love you guys see you next week